Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us back together again. Give us alert minds. Help us to understand some practical ways to manage our uh, or your money in accordance to your will. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get into it. Session two, we're counting the cost. Debts, budgets, and your life. Okay, so for those of you who weren't here earlier, savingthecrumbs.com, that's our website. And then the seminar that I keep referring to, Audioverse, Beyond the Tithe, it's a six-part series from GYC 2015. Let's get right into it. We started on this earlier, talking about debt. The borrower is servant or slave to the lender. Proverbs 22.7. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life. Getting into debt, avoid it as you would the smallpox. Avenue's home, page 393, paragraph 4. So debt is not desirable. It's like a disease. It's like being in, in, in slavery. So debt is bad, very bad, but not a sin. Okay, It's still not something you want in your life, but we can't say that it's a sin exactly. So this was the statement we read earlier that I think uh, was somewhat of a revelation for those of us who have not been aware that Ellen White actually borrowed money. Publishing Ministry, page 209, paragraph 4 and 5 says, I now ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000. And at the end of the story here, when the expenses of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So this statement here actually hidden within it is the principle of what is permissible debt. The question was asked earlier, is there such a thing called good debt? If I'm going to follow the Bible and spirit of prophecy, debt is still smallpox and it's still slavery. So it's difficult for me to call any type of slavery or any type of smallpox good. You understand what I mean? However, there are acceptable instances in which borrowing money is permissible. Okay, you, you catch the difference. It's permissible, but when it's something's permissible, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it. Okay, so what's what are the the rules? Okay, what's the criteria that Ellen White, through this ex example right here, illustrates to us or shows us as the rules for debt? There are two rules, and they're related. Number one, rules for acceptable debt. Number one, never borrow money for something that goes down in value. We're going to talk, illustrate this a little bit more later. And number two is where Ellen White makes this very clear. Borrowing is acceptable only if what you are buying can pay back the debt. Okay, you see how these two things are related. If something can pay off the debt, then it doesn't go down in value because it's generating value. Never borrow money for something that goes down in value. Number one, borrowing is acceptable only if what you're buying can pay off the debt. These are the rules. If the debt violates these rules, then no debt allowed. Is that clear? Amen. Let's dig a little deeper. So what about these things? Borrowing money to buy an iPhone. Is that an acceptable use of debt? No. no. What about a vacation? No. no. What about a car? No. <laughs> You're saying no, but you're saying like, no, please don't say that. <laughs> the answer is no. Ooh, is right. Because guess what? Does a car ever go up in value? 
And you might be saying you're the smart Alex out there, like, oh, it might become a classic. Your Toyota Camry's never going to be a classic, okay? <laughs> and uh, now I will make this exception for the car, okay? And that is if you run a business, right, and you use a car to generate money, then perhaps there might be instances, okay? Maybe you're like a plumbing company, you have to buy a truck, or you're an Uber driver, right, or something like that. So if, if the car is a business asset that earns you money, then all of a sudden, it pays for itself. So that's a different scenario. I'm talking about our personal passenger vehicles, right, that we take to Starbucks. So let's take a look. Interest and depreciation. Here's the reason why we should never borrow money for something that goes down in value. It's because of interest and depreciation. So we talked about the iPhone, the vacation, and the car. An iPhone, brand new iPhone, $650. That's last year's prices. Who knows what the new iPhone is going to cost? Price after one year, that $650 phone now is only worth $400. How do I know that? Because I only buy one-year-old iPhones. That's one of my secrets for saving money, by the way. My wife and I, we never buy current-year iPhones. We wait a year. People buy it in the year. There's still a warranty on it. The battery is still good. And I just saved myself $250 for a phone that everybody else is paying full price for. Somebody should have said amen to that. Okay, all right. So... <laughs> If I borrowed money at 10% interest, I would have paid $715, but after one year, I paid $715 for a $400 device, meaning I overspent by 315 bucks. That's why you should never borrow money to buy an iPhone. Okay, on a vacation, all right, let's say it's a $2,000 vacation, the price after one year is $0, because you can't sell your vacation back. You can't get a refund, but if you pay for it with a 10% uh, interest credit card, and good luck finding a credit card that only charges 10% interest. The difference is you paid $2,200. Now, am I saying don't go on vacation? No. Go on vacation, but don't go into debt to do it. You're going to vacation to de-stress, but you're only creating more stress by coming back and having this huge credit card payment, right? Okay, and the car. Everybody knows the moment you drive a car off the lot, it loses its value. It's true. Let's say you buy a $30,000 car. That's a nice car. Price after one year, $24,300. If you pay 10% interest, that would have been $33,000 just in the first year. So in one year, you would have lost $8,700. You would never have felt it, but that money surely has left you. Okay? Paying interest on depreciating assets. There is no surer way to lose money. So don't do it. So I'm, gonna, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you know, those are unacceptable forms of debt. But what are some acceptable forms of debt? What are some things that we frequently borrow money for that might increase in value or can pay itself off? A home, I heard. Schooling is another one. Those are the two big ones. Anything else? Business, that's another one, right? Those are really generally the three biggest ones, okay? Is that if you borrow money for an education, the idea is it increases your earning potential, and then you can pay it off. Right? And education is very valuable. And then a house. Right? A house is different than a car because home values can go up. Do they always go up? Okay, let's not forget what happened in 2008. Okay? Especially in this part of the country, housing prices went into the toilet. And uh, I'm not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but I believe that day is coming again. So... Don't borrow money for things that only go down in value. All right. So let's talk a little bit about credit cards. All right. Our friend, the credit card. 
And this is where I differ from our friend uh, Mr. Dave Ramsey. Okay, Mr. Dave Ramsey, if you've listened to him, he is a credit card czar. He says no credit cards whatsoever under any circumstances. No matter how wealthy you are, whatever, whatever, whatever. I don't necessarily uh, take it that far. I understand why he says that. But the issue is not the money or the card itself. It's the love of money that's the problem, right? Credit cards themselves are not dangerous. They're just a piece of plastic. Credit cards without self-control is dangerous. The problem is not in the piece of plastic. The problem is in the person holding the piece of plastic. But I will say that in this day and age, it is possible to live without credit cards. Okay? Those people that say, oh, you got to have a credit card. Oh, in order to have a good credit score, whatever. It is easier. Let me tell you. It is easier if you want to borrow money for a house or things like that to have had a credit card, build up a credit history. So I don't have a problem with that. But if you choose not to live with credit cards, I'm not going to beat you up over that either because it is possible. And I, have, you know, I admire your self-control if you choose to do that, understanding your own weakness. Not entirely true. It is difficult, yes, but I have rented a car with a debit card before, so it is not entirely possible, but you are correct. There is going to be some inconveniences, there will be, uh, in this day and age, so it is something to keep in mind. So credit cards do have benefits, okay, and I want to make this clear. Credit cards are not all evil. <laughs> you do get cash back, you know, flight reward points and, uh, you know, card points and things like that, and I think... It is a wise thing to take advantage of that as long as you're not going to debt to do it. So what are the rules, okay, for proper credit card usage? Don't use them to buy stuff you don't need. That's the hard one. Because we look at something and we say, oh, I can pay for it. I can afford it because I've got a card that lets me walk out of the store without the security guard stopping me from shoplifting. That doesn't necessarily mean we can afford it. It just means we got something legally, okay? But how do you know what you need or don't need? Well, we're going to talk about having a budget, a savings plan, and all of that. Never carry a balance. Pay them off every month. That's the second rule. If you break this rule, cut up your card. If you violate it one time, you have demonstrated to yourself and the world that you cannot be trusted with the nuclear code called a credit card because <laughs> you're about to blow yourself up. And I have some friends, you know, they pay it they, they, to make sure that they stay disciplined. They don't pay it off once at the end of the month. My wife and I, that's what we do. We just pay the full amount when the bill comes out. But I have some friends, they pay it off as they go. So they buy something on the card and they pay it off that day. It's a lot more work, but for them, it's like they don't want to risk running a balance. If you need to do that, do that, okay? If you violate either of these two rules, cut up the card. You remember what Jesus says, if your right hand offends thee? Cut it off. Credit card, it's much less pain cutting the plastic than your hand. <laughs> Consolidate to concentrate rewards. So, you know, there are um, a lot of websites out there. You might have seen some of them, the points guy, whatever. They teach you how to maximize uh, credit card bonus points, and you get all these, you know, fancy vacations and flying first class for free and stuff. Y you know, that's nice and all. You can look into that. But for me, simplicity is something that is more valuable sometimes than merely the dollars and cents. So keeping it simple means having as few cards as is necessary. Okay? And there's some reasons for that. Because a lot of times credit cards, they 
well, for one, a lot of them, they have annual fees. So if you have multiple cards, you're going to be paying multiple annual fees. And if you have multiple annual fees and you're not earning enough rewards on those cards to negate the impact, you're not even breaking even. So you're actually losing money. Okay? But the other point, besides the annual fees, is that a lot of them, you have to reach a certain threshold on your card reward system before you can cash anything out. So you might need, you know, $25, $50, $100, or so many points before you can redeem it for a ticket or whatever. And if you spread out your spending over 10, 15, 20, 30 cards, everything's got like a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but you can't use any of it. So far better to consolidate your cards into one or two that you can actually maximize the rewards. And you pick what kind of rewards work the best for you. If you're a big travel, you know, travel person, get a travel card. Obviously, you know, all the moms here probably has a Costco card, right? You got to get cheap gas somehow here in Southern California. Uh, and, you know, it might be a cashback card. That's what my wife and I use. We have a 2% cashback card. This is not an advertisement. I'm not paid by PayPal, but I just read before I came here, they just came out with a 2% cashback card. No limits on your rewards. You can redeem it for any am amount of points. You just have to have a PayPal account. I don't have that card. It just came out last week. So, you know, you can look around. And the point is, if you're able to, if you're able to responsibly use credit cards, the rewards can be worth it. You're not earning money. It's not going to make you a millionaire by any stretch of the imagination. But to get a 2% discount, let's say, cash back on every purchase, I'm going to take it. Right? So what, what's my position on credit cards? Use them responsibly. Know your own limits. Be willing to cut them up if you cannot control yourself. And keep it simple. Fewer cards generally trump having lots of fancy ones. Okay? So that's my two cents. That's my 2% cash back for you on the credit cards there. So paying off debt. Let's talk about that. Let's say you've got debt already. How do you pay it off? Number one, you've got to own the debt. Don't make excuses and don't play the victim. You know, it's popular nowadays to always blame someone else. And it's not just personal finance. You know, you hear about our government. Oh, you know, so-and-so racked up the national debt some more. It's always someone else's fault. Well, if it's our debt, it's our problem. And we're never going to get overcome it if we just keep blaming other people. Take ownership of this thing and let's say, okay, I'm not going to blame anyone else. I'm not a victim. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this thing back. There is no alternative to making big payments, okay? That's the second point about paying off debt. We just have to remember that the only way to pay back the debt is to pay it off. There's no magic that somehow, oh, the money will disappear. Now, yeah, I know some of you are thinking about federal student loan forgiveness programs and things like that. I have, like, I think it's a three-part article series on my blog talking about the um, student loan forgiveness program, and uh, you can read it. I crunched the numbers. I think you'll see that it's actually not much of a forgiveness program at all. So there is no alternative to making big payments. Sometimes you can negotiate with creditors, but that won't eliminate the debt. So if you're in a serious bind, like you are on the verge of bankruptcy, right? Sometimes you can negotiate and say, look, you can get, you know, 10 cents on my dollar of my debt, or I can file for bankruptcy and you get nothing. Uh, that might help them to, you know, negotiate with you a little bit but it probably won't eliminate the whole debt. And by the way, my personal philosophy, I believe the Bible tells us, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, that's a statement, 
Bankruptcy should not be a Christian's first option. That shouldn't be in our toolkit as a viable path. If we gave our word, let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. If we said we're going to pay this back, pay it back. Okay? That's being true to our word. But that's not to say that bankruptcy should never be considered. Same time. Student loans, perhaps, probably not with the federal government. If it's a private loan, maybe. Maybe. So the next point here, make debt payoff the number one priority in your short-term savings plan. We, we're going to get to the savings plans in a minute, but then you've got to squeeze every dime out of your monthly spending plan to do it. So when you are trying to pay off the debt, it's got to be a priority. If it's going to be like number three, four, five on your priority list, it's never going to get done because it's too convenient to keep putting it off. And then don't worry about other investments until your debt is paid off. So a lot of times people ask me, oh, should I be investing in my retirement you know, I might get 4%, whatever, in my IRA, uh, but, but, you know, my student loan is charging me, you know, 8 9%. Like, um, hmm, pay that off first. Don't worry about saving for in your retirement yet because it is an investment. Paying off your debt is an investment. You get a return on that money by reducing the interest you have to pay. And this is where I do agree with Mr. Dave Ramsey, and that is the debt snowball method. That's, I believe, the most effective method of paying off debt. So what is the debt, debt snowball? So you take all of your debts and you list them in order from the smallest to the largest balance, how much you still owe, okay? Smallest to largest, and you pay minimums on all of the debts except the smallest one. It might feel counterintuitive, counter but follow me here. And then you want to focus your intense efforts to pay off the smallest debt then roll all the extra payments to the next one on the list. Yes, question? Um, you said smallest amount to largest. Yes. Is that by interest rate? It's not by interest rate. Good question. So it's by the balance. Okay, so you're not taking credit, uh, the interest rate into account necessarily. And uh, I'll explain the reason for that. And you just go from the smallest amount, you pay that off, whatever you were pouring into that smallest amount, roll it onto the next one. And then when you're done with that one, you roll it to the next one, okay? And in the meantime, you're trying to inject as much extra capital as you can into the snowball until you're paid off. So here's an example. This individual has four loans. Credit card number one, $1,000. Credit cards number two, $2,500. Car loan, $10,000. And a student loan, $25,000. So $38,500 total in debt. So if this person has $1,000 per month that can be put toward the debt... In the first month, credit card number one, gone, forever. In three and a half months or four months here, both credit cards gone. So in essence, when you look at it on the list, in a matter of four months, it feels as though he's halfway there. It's a psychological game. Dollar amount-wise, he's nowhere near halfway. But on the list of priorities, it gives you the, uh, the sense of accomplishment. And then in 39 months or a little over three years, bam, 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 you keep rolling it up and you're done in uh, less than three and a half years. But of course, that's without adding to the $1,000 per month, okay? So why do I say snowball and not the avalanche? And when I say avalanche, that's when you pay off your debt in order of highest to lowest interest rate, okay? Because some of you might be thinking, you know, if I order my loans in the order of highest interest rate to lowest interest rate, it'll save the most amount of money. And if you do your math, You'll see that that's correct. So why go by order of balance instead of the order of interest rate? And it's all because of the human behavior. 
we are easily motivated when we see progress. But if we don't see progress, the math, the sheer numbers by itself may not be enough to help us grind it through. So imagine if you go back here, and let's say we go in reverse order, because the student loan has the highest interest rate for some reason, and you know, the other ones have lowest interest rate. $25,000 at $1,000 a month, you're paying minimum payments for these three for 25 months. That's over two years. And you're looking on this list, and it's like, man, it's been a year and a half. It's been 24 months, and I haven't made any progress. You might actually be saving money if this had the highest interest rate, but you're going to have a hard time sticking with it for two years. It's going to look like I'm not getting anywhere. But if you're able to flip this thing around and within a matter of months, you're like, man, I just crossed off two things off my list in a matter of months. It's going to feel like, all right, I can do this, right? Like if you're like me, you're a list person, right? The the to-do list. Like sometimes I do something that wasn't on the list and I put it on the list after I've done it just so I can scratch it off, <laughs> right? It's the, same, it's the same way of thinking. It's to help you motivate yourself. And so, yes, you might lose a little bit of money, but in the end, uh, at the end of the, of the story, it's better to lose a little bit of money and actually get out of debt than trying to save that little bit and never get out of debt. So that's the point. Paying off the debt, your debt is the best investment. If you regret being debt-free, it's easy to undo it. So this is, this is, this is the sales pitch, all right? Have you ever been debt-free? No. Everybody's in debt. Well, have you tried it? No. Well, try it out for a while. And if you don't like it, you know, I'll loan you some money, right? Or you can go borrow something else. So give it a try. Maybe you will want to stay in a debt-free state. So the two biggest debt scenarios, we've mentioned this already earlier, student loans and the home mortgage. And we've already discussed that yes and yes, dot, 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 they are permissible forms of debt. And I, don't, I didn't list a business loan here, but Ellen White's request earlier to borrow money to print books, that's a business loan. She's asking for money to create more assets that's going to be sold uh, at a profit. So student loans and home mortgages, let's talk about that a little bit. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean you must. Let's remember that. Just because you can borrow money uh, doesn't mean you must do it. And it doesn't mean you must take out the maximum amount. Uh, tomorrow morning for our uh, morning devotion, I'm going to be sharing my story of uh, part of my story of how I actually worked my way through my graduate program and uh, how the Lord provided for that. So I could have borrowed money, but I chose not to, and the Lord opened the way. And I'll share that story tomorrow. But the student loan fine print, a few things we need to know about this. Federal student loans can't be discharged in bankruptcy. Got to remember that. There are two ways, and I'm not talking about private student loans, okay? I'm talking about federal student loans. So there are two ways to get out from under student loan debt. Number one is to pay it off. Number two is to die. <laughs> I think I know which one I prefer. And, uh, you know, there was a sad story not long ago I read in the news. There was a tragic story. A young lady, she was killed in an accident, and her parents were surprised to see that uh, they were being asked to pay the rest of her student loans. She was dead. And you know the reason why? They co-signed the loan. 
Yeah. So parents, I know how much you love your children, but don't co-sign their loans. The Bible says don't co-sign anybody's loans. So just a word to the wise. If the bank requires a co-signer, why do you think that? It's because they don't expect that person to pay. And so the parents are going to be responsible. So don't co-sign. But remember this, student loans can't be discharged in bankruptcy. You're still going to have to pay. The government can even garnish your tax returns. My friend Ed Reed, he is a, um, you know, he was a former stewardship director for the North American Division. He's written books and he's given seminars. He told this story where he's, he's also a lawyer. And so there was a mother who came up to him just quite frustrated. Her daughter got a summer job and she earned like $300 or something. No, 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 I'm sorry. She earned a couple thousand dollars and she was expecting a $300 tax refund when she filed her taxes before April 15. And she did all of her numbers and everything. Oh, you got $300 coming back. But then when the letter came in the mail, the IRS said, thank you so much. We have, out of convenience to you, applied your $300 towards your student loan just to save you the trouble. And so this mom went to Ed Reed, who's a, an attorney, and said, can you help us sue the IRS? And uh, he's like, well, you know, no lawyer is going to take up this case for 300 bucks." But the point of the story is just this. You're borrowing money from Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is the one who's responsible for giving your tax refund. For all intents and purposes, Uncle Sam doesn't see this as our money. It's his. And he's just trying to be nice to save you the postage of having to write that check and send it back. And so we might be in for a, a surprise uh, if we expect Uncle Sam to play nice sometimes. Just because you qualify, don't take the max amount because it ain't free money. It just boggles my mind sometimes when you know students are like, oh yeah, I got full student loans and a living loan and a car loan and a loan to go on some crazy vacation. I mean, it's like, why? What are you thinking? Come over here and let me slap you, boy. Because someday the borrower is still going to have to pay back the lender. And until that day, the shackles of bondage are still on. And so don't take the max amount. Just take the minimum you need, okay? Even though it's permissible, right? It's permissible. Don't take more than you need. And, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, just going to say this. You know, how often there are young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young people who say, I want to work for God, go to school, without counting the cost. They go to Adventist schools, take maximum loans through undergraduate, medical school, dental school, whatever. And then they come out the other end and like, oh man, I want to work for God, but oh, I can't. I've got $400,000 of debt. That's not even a lie. Go check out Loma Linda Dental School. $400,000. And we wonder why our young people are so stressed, right? And I believe a lot of them genuinely want to serve the Lord. They do. But no man can serve two masters. That's a fact. You can't serve God and mammon at the same time. And so if we can only think through things properly going in to minimize the debt load, or like some of my friends I was just talking to, there's a deferred missions program with Loma Linda or other options out there. Let's try to make sure that we don't inadvertently become enslaved to mammon through the debt of our student loans 
when God actually has use for our youth and our energy to serve him in the field. All right. So this is the story of our house. Okay, so let's talk about home mortgages a little bit. So we paid off our house in two years. This is our house, by the way. This is it. And uh, you, what you don't see is our backyard, and also, it also there's also a guest house on the side. I think there's a picture of it later. So it's a one-acre land about 10 minutes from Southern Avenue University uh, with two houses on it. Here are the numbers. We bought the house in 2013 for $185,000. I know. I mean, this is Tennessee. I know. I'm not lying, but yes, here in, here in California, that's like a doghouse. I know. So uh, you should start thinking about some country living here, guys. So uh, our mortgage was $85,000. We got a 15-year fixed-rate conventional mortgage at 3.49% interest. And our minimum payments on a monthly basis was $607.24. But our average payments, because we paid it off in two years, exactly two years, to the day, in fact, $3,700 average annual payments, or actual payments, sorry. And we had a $100,000 down payment. So people are like, what's the secret to paying off the house? Well, the secret is in these two lines in the bottom. Okay? And you're like, that's no secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no secret. You got to pay off, pay off the house. So how do we do this, right? So here's the secret. For the big down payment, my wife had a dream to buy her first house in cash, and so I've been saving up ever since she graduated from school. And in our home, between my wife and I, I'm the spender, she's the saver. And she's the one that had this dream. And so since she was a time uh, in college and after, she, she's a registered nurse. So she did nursing and she just saved everything she could. She lived like a student after she graduated and she just piled up a, a whole bunch of cash. And then the big monthly payments is the other part of the story. Nearly all of our extra savings went toward the mortgage. We averaged six times our minimum payments. So when my wife and I were paying off the house, we didn't have a baby yet. And we, we knew that once the baby came, we wanted to have a stay-at-home mom. We wanted Deborah to be able to stay home. And so while she was working, we just lived on one income. We just adjusted our lifestyle so that my income covered all of our living expenses. And everything that she made, 100% of her income plus additional amounts that I made, went towards paying off the house. And, of course, we didn't have student loans. So if we had student loans, that might have been a priority. We might have put this off later. We might have had other debts, right? So your situation, your mileage will vary. I'm not saying you have to be exactly like us, but this is what we did. And so we realized that if we paid off the house, it would reduce our living expenses by $607 per month, and Deborah's income would go away, and we would never have to pay for housing again. No rent, no mortgage, just insurance and things like that and property tax and things like that. But we're looking at significantly smaller amount. And, uh, and also, uh, we were able to um, install solar panels, so now we have no electric bill. So there are other things that we were able to do, right, because we were able to save up and to make the big payments. So we adjusted our life for that priority. And at the end of the day, it's all about the savings rate. Okay, that's, that's what it's all about. How much you save as a down payment ahead of time, and how much you're able to save to apply towards the bigger payments while you're paying it off. So here are the benefits. We get to live rent and mortgage-free, eliminating the single largest expense in our budget. So 
most people, housing is the biggest portion of their budget. Usually it's about a quarter to a third of the take-home pay. Imagine if that in your budget was just wiped out. What would you do with all that extra money? We own our home now instead of the bank, so there's no risk of foreclosure. That's nice. And so we have more cash for other things. Solar panels, for example. We install solar panels, and at the time, we were able to get you know, an incentive from our, our electric company and the federal government. And so now our solar panels earn us money. Not only do we get a $0 bill, the electric company pays us every month. So better than having a $0 amount for your budget is letting someone pay you for it. So we paid off our mortgage the same month that our baby was born, and so it's just one less thing to stress about. Okay, so those are some of the things that we did. And this is, uh, this is our backyard and our pond. We have fruit trees now that's not in there. And that's the guest house. Okay, so snowy winter day. So a uh, little bit of country living does the soul good. All right, but here is the other part of the numbers that is important to remember. We saved a ton of interest because we paid off the, the loan early. And yes, it's true. Everybody always asks, well, you only had a 3.5% interest uh, mortgage. Wouldn't you have earned more if you invested in something else that earned more while you saved that money and paid your mortgage off a little later? The answer is yes, that is true. We may have done that in other circumstances, but because we knew, we did the timetable, we did the math, we knew we could pay it off in two years, we decided it was more worth it for us to have the freedom of having Deborah stay home to reduce our monthly cash flow needs rather than necessarily just maximizing our long-term investments. So that was a personal decision that we made for cash flow purposes. But in your case, it may be better to keep a lower interest loan a little bit longer like in a house and paying off other things or investing in other things uh, first. But your mileage may vary. So let's take a look at the numbers. So we got a 15-year mortgage, okay? $85,000 monthly payment. If we had just gone with the minimum, the amount of interest we would have paid in 15 years is $24,000. Sounds like a lot of money, but most people go with a 30-year conventional mortgage, and this number would be more than double. So this is only for 15 years, but we paid it off in two years. So in two years, uh, this $3,300 here is actually the actual amount of interest that we paid for a whole house. Slightly over $3,000 in interest. That's it. And so how much do we save in interest compared to a full 15-year? $21,000. Now, when you stretch that out over 15 years, it feels a lot less pain, painful because you're looking at it in small chunks and pieces and you're paying only $600 a month. But in the end, you are still $21,000 behind. You may not know it, but you are. So isn't a mortgage good for my taxes? So we've been told? That's a question. But it's also a myth. Because only the interest from your mortgage payment can be deducted from your taxes, not the full payment. It's the interest. So early on in your payments, you have more interest. If you look at your amortization chart and all that, you'll see how they break it down. Hardly any money goes to the principal at first. Most of it goes toward interest. So yeah, there's going to be some deductions. But remember, it's a tax deduction, not a tax credit. So the interest rate that you're deducting, all it does is it subtracts that amount from your taxable income. And so you're just getting taxed on a slightly less amount. They're not giving you that money back at 
And this, by the way, only applies to those who itemize deductions. So you know the standard deduction when you file your taxes and the itemized deductions. The, mo the vast majority of Americans only take the standard deduction. And if you take a standard deduction, your mortgage interest rate makes no difference because you can't deduct it because you're not deducting anything. And so only if you itemize deductions does the mortgage interest rate even do anything for you. And even with that, okay, even with that, you save more money by paying off the loan than you get back in a deduction. So it's like when you pay the interest for your mortgage, let's say you pay you know, $1,000, you might get back $250 in your tax return, tax refund. So it's like paying a, a dollar to get back 25 cents. And if your accountant or someone is telling you you need to keep your mortgage in order to maintain your mortgage a deduction, uh, it might be time to find a new accountant. But am I saying that you should not take the mortgage deduction? No. If you can and you're paying off the house, take it. Take it. But I'm just saying don't put off paying off the house in order to keep the mortgage deduction. Okay? So if you do have to, take it. I'll take the edge off, that's for sure. So that's, we're talking about debt, okay? So we need to move quickly here because we need to now talk about um, budgeting. And the Bible tells us in Luke 14, 28 through 30, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So we talked about paying off the debt so far. Now we have to look about building, right? Debt is like digging ourselves out of the hole. We're like underground. We pay off the debt and now, okay, we're on ground level. Now we're ready to build up. And when we're building the tower, Jesus here basically says, you got to have a budget for the project before you start or you might not have enough money to finish. And if you don't have enough money to finish, um, hmm, everyone's going to laugh at you. So we need to be able to budget to finish, and we need to have a plan, okay? So this is where we talk about our financial plans. And this, in a nutshell, is how I structure our household budgets. And I don't call them budgets because budgets are, sound like such a bad word. I call them plans. There are three types of plans, and if we have time, we'll get to the point about relationships. We'll see how, how we go. But there is this thing called life event plans, and then long and short-term saving plans, and then the monthly spending plan. And the monthly spending plan is what we usually refer to as the budget. Now, what's a life event plan? Okay, let's take a look at that. Life event plans essentially are the one-off uh, events in our lives that require money. So it could be college. Right? Or a change in a career, like a big move. It could be a wedding. It could be the purchase of a home, like a down payment. It could be buying a car or taking a vacation or having a baby, paying off your debt, mission work, like a mission trip, long-term, short-term. Um, or even saving up to go to the next GYC conference. Uh, children's education, that's a big one, and retirement. So these are life events that we need to plan ahead for that's going to cost money. Just like if we're going to build a house, okay, or build a tower, got to have a budget, got to have a plan. So the questions to answer when we're trying to construct a life event plan is how much will it cost? That's the obvious one. But 
a corollary to that question is what can I afford? Those questions may sound synonymous, but sometimes they're not. Because just because we know what something, in cost, something costs may not mean that we can realistically afford it, right? We might know that you know, the dream car that I have costs $100,000, but that's not what I can afford. So when I know that, then I have to adjust my expectations. Okay, the other question we have to ask is when do I need this money? There's gotta be a time associated with this. Okay, it can't be just an open-ended, someday, by and by type of thing. And then how much do I need to start saving now in order to have what I need, when I need it? That's it, three questions to plan your life events. So as an example, we don't wanna go crazy with stuff. This is the average wedding cost in North America uh, as of 2014. They have actually updated this number. I haven't updated it in my slides here, but uh, in 2014, the average wedding cost nationally is $31,213. And it's gone up since then. It's like 35000 now. You know, a wedding is a significant day, but just because everyone and all the marketing that you hear says to the bride, it's your big day, you deserve it, you're a princess, you should have whatever you want. Is this a good way to get your marriage started on the right foot? After the wedding, you come back from the honeymoon and you're staring at a $30,000 bill on top of all the student loans and car loans and whatever else. So yeah, a wedding might cost this much, but be realistic with what you can actually afford, okay? So a life event plan goes into thinking through all those details. And so for our wedding, this was our wedding day, we paid 3000 So uh, that did not include the honeymoon, though. The honeymoon was about the same, so about 6000 altogether. So not actually the cheapest wedding. I have some friends who came up and said, ha, we paid a lot less than you. So uh, yeah, we applaud them. And if you're getting ready to get married, uh, there are ways. There are ways to do it for a lot less. And by the way, my wife have a whole series of articles on our blog about what we did for our wedding how we saved on the invitations, the flowers, the dress, all that stuff. So the life event plan then leads into our long-term and short-term savings plans. Okay, and what, in summary, the long and short-term saving plan is just the collection of all of the life events that we're saving up for. That's basically what they are. So a savings plans are life events, you know, what we're saving up for. It helps us to keep the end in mind. It collates everything, the big picture. And it prevents the need to resort to debt because we can plan ahead. And this is important, this bottom point. It gives us a target for which to save rather than simply what not to spend. Okay, We're going to come back to this point when we talk about the monthly budget. And so this is sort of the, the picture. We start off with all of the list of life events that we've got. We, we, we figure out how much we need, when we need it. And then it flows into one list, essentially, or two lists, if you want to think of it that way, that aggregates those numbers in one convenient place. And it gives us the targets. This is what we're shooting for. So what's the difference between long-term and short-term savings? It's really just a timetable. Long-term savings, things more than five years away. Short-term savings, things are five years or less, okay? So things, money that you need, 
within five years, treat it as a short-term savings. If it's something that's beyond five years, look at it, look at it as a long-term savings. And you treat them differently because in a long-term scenario, you will want your money to work harder for you to earn more over the long term. And because you have more time, you can take on a little more risk. And so you want higher yielding accounts in your investments, things that earn you a bit more than if you were in a short-term savings in an insured account like an FDIC or NCUA account. Because in five years, what you're trying to do is you're trying to preserve your capital. You don't want your money to all of a sudden lose value right when you need it. Whereas in a longer-term scenario, even if the money goes down, there's time for it to come back. And uh, the way that you treat it is you have regular monthly savings. So long-term, it's a marathon. You pace yourself. You figure out, okay, you know, I've got this plan, next 10 years, 20 years, 15 years, 7 years, whatever it is, I need to save $500 a month. And every month, you just chip, out, chip away at it regularly, every month. But short-term savings is a sprint. Because you need the money in a short term, you need to run for it and to cover those expenses as fast as you can. So you just save them in the order of priority. And we're going to illustrate this more in a minute. And so what are some examples of long and short-term savings? So in the long-term savings, you're talking about some things that are like a longer-term debt. So maybe like a mortgage for your house uh, or a college fund if you've got kids that you're saving up for their college. Maybe a house down payment if you're early on in your, in your, in your planning. And of course, retirement usually is the longest-term savings. Uh, Short-term savings, we're talking about smaller debts, credit cards, things like that. An emergency fund, usually emergency fund runs three to six months of your living expenses. You need to have that cushion to save you from uh, being like those people that can't pay for a $500 emergency. Uh, and also weddings, vacations, trips, usually you're not planning those things out more than five years in advance. And then anything else like cars, toys, gadgets, big purchases usually fall under the short-term savings. So to illustrate this, I'm going to use a fictional example. Meet Frugal Fanny. She's a registered nurse. And we're going to take a look at her budget, her savings plan as an example. So she's got a long-term savings plan. Okay, Long-term, she wants to save for these three things. Student loans, she wants to pay it off in 10 years, $35,000. House down payment, she wants to save $20,000, also in 10 years. And retirement, $750,000 in 40 years. And so she does the math, bam, 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 with a conservative rate of return. Monthly, she needs to save these amounts. So she figures she needs $770 per month to reach these goals. Okay, so this is how, these were her life events. These are the individual life events that she's planning for. She aggregates them together, and this is her long-term savings plan. And her pace for this marathon she's running, the pace she needs to run at is $770 a month. The bottom line is she must save a minimum of $770 each month in order to save her, for her long-term goals. Okay, so far, so good. What about her short-term savings? She's got a few more things here. She's got credit card debt, $1,000. She wants to pay it off right now. Emergency fund, $9,000 right now, ASAP. She's got a wedding. Congratulations, Fanny. She's getting married in eight months. She's read our blog, she, so she wants to keep it to $3,000. In 10 months, they're going to go on a mission trip. Once they get married, 500 bucks. She has a car loan uh, she's been paying off, and she's got two years left on her car loan, and it's a $450 monthly payment. And she just got a new computer, but she knows that in about five years, she's going to need a new one, uh, and she budgets about $1,500 for a new computer. 
So she adds it all up, and so far, of the bottom four here, she needs at least $900 a month, but she's got these two up here, right? So she's got a total of $20,000. So she's got a problem, okay? So what is she going to do now with her short-term savings plan? She's got these items that she needs to address right away, $10,000 worth. Well, I looked down her list, and you knew this was coming because we talked about how it's not good to borrow money to buy a car, right? And so she's got a car loan. Her car loan still has $5,000 left on it, two years and $450. So let's see if we can do something with that, okay? So let's ask our question about her car. She's got a Honda Accord, two years old. It's worth $13,000 still. She owes $5,000. So what should she do? What do you think? She should sell the car. Now, you know, this is an emotional decision for some people. I can, uh, I can sort of relate maybe a little bit, you know, if you have a car, you've driven it for a long time. I mean, this car is only two years old, so don't know how much of a relationship you've built in two years with a car. But sometimes it's like, oh, but I can't give up this thing. We've, we've crossed country with it, and, you know, I got stranded in it once, and, you know, we bonded, and... You can get another car, you know, it's a, it's a travel appliance. And so if you, if you sell the car, here's how the numbers work out. So the car is worth 13000 her loan is 5000 and then she takes out $2,500 from the thirteen to buy another car, temporary car, and she's got $5,500 left. I mean, this is a nice, neat example, right? It's fictional. But, you know, a lot of times we're, we're upside down on the car. So if that's the case, then you're sort of stuck because you owe more on the car than the car is worth. And frequently that happens if you've got a long payment time and the car depreciates really fast and you drive a lot of miles or whatever. So in this particular scenario, and I tried my best to base it on real numbers and my research, it worked out for her. Okay, She didn't drive it too much. Her car is in nice condition and all that. And this is an important point right here I want to mention, is that I'm not saying you need to just go without a car. And if you can, great. Don't buy a car. You'll have more money, another $2,500. Let's say you live across the street. You know, she's a nurse. She lives across the street from the medical center, and she can just walk to work, right, or ride her bike. If you can, do it. If you're a student living on campus and you don't need a car, sell the car. You can buy it later. But if you do need a car, which is many of us, $2,500 is a temporary car, okay? A lot of people, they think, oh, I can't drive a beater. $2,500, you can get a pretty nice car, all right? Because I drive a car that's worth far less than that, and it's, it's great. Honda Accord, V6, leather. I mean, it's got everything I need. So $2,500, you can probably move down, you know, $1,000 and still get a reasonable car. And the key here is it's temporary, okay? I want you to remember this. This, is, this example here is just to show that sometimes us making a temporary adjustment can help us over the long run to make a significant improvement in our financial standing. So let's illustrate what I mean right here. So we, we got $5,500 back from the car, the sale of the car, and now we're driving an older car, cheaper car, but we have $5,500, so the credit card debt is immediately paid off. And we wanted, I believe it was $9,000 for an emergency fund. And so 
$1,000 of that or $4,500 of that is now paid off. So she's only got that much left for her emergency fund. And what's fascinating is that this line here, we took out the car loan and that she was paying $450 a month for, but we're keeping the $450 payment. But instead of paying it to the car dealer or the bank, she's just going to save that amount. And guess what? In two years, miraculously, she has $10,000 sitting in her bank account. And what's going to happen in two years? She's got her $2,500 car. Let's be generous, and let's just say her car went down in value you know, $1,000. It's unlikely, right? But let's just say she got another... She lost $1,000 depreciation on her car. She sells it for $1,500. How much money does she have now to buy another car? $11,500. And guess what? For $11,500, she could buy a nicer car than the one that she sold at the beginning of the story. It'll probably not be a new car. Okay? But if she buys that car and she keeps saving her $450 in five years, right? She'll have another, I don't know what it is. 40000 50000 something somewhere in there, maybe, and the price of that car that she sells, and by that point, she's moved up to in the range of getting a newish car. So she never needed to borrow money to buy the car. So this example with the car is just to show you that it is possible to still drive a modern, safe, reliable vehicle. You just have to pay yourself first. Instead of, paying, instead of buying the car and paying for it later, you can have a temporary car, uh, not be so um, driven to having the latest and the best right away, but within a few years, you can get there. So here, Frugal Fanny now is looking at a slightly different picture now with her financial uh, position, her short-term savings. So what can she do with her emergency fund? $4,500. Here are just a few ideas. If you're trying to just drum up a one-time increase in your savings, a garage sale, got a lot of junk, one man's trash is another man's treasure, as they say, eBay, Craigslist, lots of stuff that can be sold. She's a nurse, so perhaps she can put her name in for extra shifts of work. She might have some hobbies. She can do side jobs. The point is you can get creative, and it's a lot easier when you know the big picture is like, okay, I know that this $4,500, if I just give it my all for like the next three months to like just grind this out, then after that, I'm going to be free for like ever. It can give a lot of motivation to put forth a little bit of effort for a short amount of time. But if we're looking at it like, oh man, I'm never going to make the bills. Uh, I'm never going to be able to save for retirement. I'm just going to constantly have to work extra shifts. And it seems like a never ending cycle. That's when people get burned out. And so that's where the savings plan helps us see the end, right? We've got a goalpost. We don't have to feel like this is forever. So let's just say that she sold some stuff, she works extra shifts, and she's got her emergency covered, emergency fund covered. So now we're left with everything left here. So she's got $15,000 that she needs to save, and it's $900 a month that she needs approximately. But for a savings plan, we're trying to save it up uh, as quickly as we can. So the bottom line. For her short-term savings, she needs to get to $15,000 ASAP, right away, as quickly as possible. And for the long-term now, she needs to pace herself at at least $770 each month. Okay, so all of that illustration to show, when you have your life event plans 
lined up. You have your long-term and short-term savings plans lined up. This is what you're getting at. You're not looking at 15 different targets. You're not thinking about a gazillion different things you've got to juggle in your mind. You're thinking about essentially two numbers. This is the target. This is what I'm shooting for. And it's a lot easier to focus your attention when you're looking at these two things instead of looking at this, right? So this is just our work to get to this. 15000 as soon as possible and then $770 each month. So her savings plan reveals the priorities in her life. And, you know, when you have your savings plan put together, I think it will be very revealing to you, especially if you work it out together with your, with your spouse if you're married. All of a sudden, you realize what's most important in your life because you realize whatever is most important, I'm going to have to prioritize my money for. Is it my kid's education? Is it paying off the house? Is it buying that new car, vacation? All of a sudden, oh, do I really value this Paris vacation more than getting out of student loan debt? Hmm. You begin to ask those questions as you're working through this process. And then also, this is important, all that quote-unquote extra money has a place to go instead of just being spent. We, can't, we can no longer say, like, you just find a $100 bill or, you know, you get a bonus at work. It's like, oh, wow, you know, let's go shopping. It's like, wait, 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 wait. What about the wedding? What about the mission trip? What about your kid's college fund? There's a list of stuff now that you're saving for. You can be an adult about it now, right? And also it gives us a target number to save for in a monthly spending plan. We're going to get to the monthly spending plan in a minute. And also it gives us the final target number for our total savings. And having the target, yeah, it's motivating, it's great, but more importantly, any surplus above that now can be given away. You know what your needs are. Remember our last session, prosperity is having our needs met. And how do we know how, what our needs are? Well, we got to have the plan. We count the cost to know we can build the tower. And guess what? If we have more money than we need to finish the tower, we don't need any more. We can give it away, right? And we can give it away without worrying about not providing for our family. A budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. John Maxwell. That's, this is indeed what we're trying to do, telling our money where to go. And so now we get to the monthly spending plan, okay? Monthly spending plan, and this is how the flow chart works. The life events create our long and short-term savings, the list of things that we're saving for, and those bottom line numbers, the amount that we're saving for now is going to help inform us in our monthly spending because our monthly spending now is going to be all driven by our savings. We're going to be spending our money every month with the goal of saving enough at the end of the month to achieve the goals that we have outlined here, okay? And that's a slightly different way of thinking about budgeting. So the monthly spending plan, we need to list our projected monthly income. If you're uh, on payroll somewhere and you just get a regular paycheck or a salary or something, that's easy. But if you're you know, a contract worker or a seasonal worker or you, you're a business owner and things are irregular, you're going to have to average things out the best you can. Okay? You're going to have to do some projections, average it out as best you can. And then you list your monthly expenses. This is from our expense tracking exercise we just talked about in the last session. Everything that you spent in the categories, list it all out. And then from there, with the categories that you listed out, now instead of simply reacting to what you spent, you look at that and that informs what you do. 
Now you assign dollar amounts to each category. So how much do I spend on food? How much do I spend on housing? How much do I spend on transportation, insurance, uh, cell phone plan, and all of that? And the goal is to reduce spending so as much as possible can go towards our savings as possible. That's the goal. And the every, every spending line, right, on the budget line, the goal is to get to zero. And let me explain what I mean. It's not possible, right? We're not, we're not going to be able to live on nothing. But we have to think in, in this perspective. A lot of times when we talk about a monthly budget, you see these worksheets, and they're like these recommended percentages. You might have seen them. It's like housing, 30%. Groceries, 20%. Insurance, 10%. It almost seems to indicate like this is how much you're supposed to spend. It's like, no, that's not how much you're supposed to spend. That's just a guideline of don't go over this. But we need to come at it this way. The ideal amount to spend on every budget, on any budget line, is nothing. And we only spend what is necessary to accomplish what we need. So in our situation, housing, right? Housing is not free. But we have prioritized our savings in such a way that now our mortgage and rent line is zero. Same with our solar power, right? Our electric bill is zero. And so it's the amount I would have been spending on those things now is flowing into my savings for the long-term and short-term goals. And the aim is to hit the targets from our saving plans, all right? And then review monthly to make sure you don't spend more than what you've allocated and adjust for the next month. And this is the thing. This is not a law of the Medes and Persians. You know, you, can't, you can change it. And if you go over one month, hey, just realize, okay, maybe I didn't budget it properly this time. I'm going to adjust it and maybe lower, lower it somewhere else. It's going to be a work in progress. And most of the time, if I recall, it's going to take you, uh, you know, around nine months to a year to really get a hang of doing your monthly spending plan. Because there are a lot of expenses that are seasonal. They, they don't come around every month. And, you know, Christmas time rolls around, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, this was really different than the last few months. And then you realize that the next year, okay, I'm going to have to adjust some things. So you just want to review and adjust as you go. So this is Fanny's current spending plan. Okay, she makes take-home pay is about $3,600. I think that works out to be about $43,000 a year or something for a, uh, a nurse. Uh, these are her expenses. Okay, so I'm not going to go through all of this right now, but she takes home, uh, she spends 90% of it, and she saves $360 per month. If we're just looking at this just as this, as her budget just flat out, uh, without any other context, we say she do, she's doing okay. She's not overspending. She's not going into the negative. She's actually coming out ahead $360 every month. So she's actually saving something. That looks good. And in fact, a lot of our um, financial guru friends and researchers and whatnot, they actually recommend a 10% savings rate, 10 to 15%. And so she's in line with what they are suggesting. However, we know the rest of the story. We know how much she needs to save for her long-term and short-term priorities. And so how does that work? What does that look like? So let's review her savings goals. At a 10% savings rate, she saves $360 a month. Her long-term savings, she needs $770 a month in order to reach her long-term goals. She needs 15,000 in a short-term savings, but at 360, she doesn't even get to 770, and she'll never save enough to get 15,000. So she's never going to achieve her goals. So with the holistic picture now, 
with all the life events, the saving, long-term, short-term savings, and her monthly budget, now we realize, oh, yeah, uh, frugal Fanny, quote-unquote, is living within her means, right? We use that term, stay within your means. She is within her means. But is she accomplishing any of her priorities? Not really. And so you see how all of a sudden it reveals to us, even though we're not spending all of our money every month, we may not actually be achieving what we're trying to achieve, right? And that's the purpose of all these plans. So Frugal Fanny has several options. She can adjust her saving goals. She can go back and say, you know, what I am trying to save up for is unrealistic. And sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves and realize, I can't afford that. I may have to cut some things or not have some things. She could increase her income, right? She could uh, get a higher paying job or work more hours. She could cut spending. That's another option. She could do a combination of these. But number five is important. She needs to commit to not getting into debt for this, okay? Because all the things that we're talking about, they're not investment type things. They're not business. They're not, you know, things that go, down, or go up in value or pay things off. So let's take a look at what are some options that she can do. Let's say she is able to increase her savings rate to 35%. You know, if she's able to increase her income, great. This will just make it that much easier. But let's just suppose that we're going to try to cut her spending. She's called Frugal Fanny afterwards, you know, after all. So let's bump her savings rate up to 35%. So that's a jump, 25% jump. So her net savings every month will now be $1,260. So of the $1,260, she applies $770 per month to her long-term savings, and she has $490 left per month towards her $15,000 short-term savings, which means she will arrive there in three years. All of a sudden, it's possible. She just has to move from here to here. That's a $900 difference. Well, before we get there, so this is how the flow chart now looks. We got life events, long-term, short-term savings. We got the bottom line numbers, our target numbers. That number informs our monthly spending. And the amount that we save every month now flows back to subtract out what we're trying to achieve. So now we have this virtuous cycle here. How much do we need to save? How much we can save from our monthly spending from month to month? So this is the flow of our, uh, our spending and our saving plans. So what does this mean? She needs an extra $900 per month, and in a way, that's only $30 per day. Now that might sound like a lot, or that might sound like not much, depending on your perspective. But let's take a look at what she can do. Okay, and these are a few tips that perhaps you might find useful, and I'm not going to be exhaustive. So what she needs to do is she needs to look down her list of spending items and save, find $900 somewhere. Is it possible? Can she do it? She's still single right now, and so her rent is $400 if she gets a roommate. She was paying $800 before. She can cut that in half by getting a roommate. And perhaps when she gets married, this number is going to change, right? She's getting married in... Uh, I don't remember, five months or something like that. Utilities and cell phone, okay? If she's got a roommate, utilities are also cut in half. And cell phone, let me just make this point. For my wife and I, we both have iPhones. We have unlimited data plans. We have na nationwide roaming. It runs on the AT&T network. It costs us $20 a month per phone. If you were to go to AT&T or Verizon for the same plan, you're paying at least $60, $80 a month per phone. 
So we're saving more than half, all right? And so this is just the tip. The service we use is called Cricket Wireless. If you're interested, visit my blog. Uh, I am actually going to make a little promotion here. You can get $25% dollar, uh, $25 off with uh, my promotional link. But that's not the only service that's out there. Don't just look at the big four, right? Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint. I mean, some of them, they're going down in price, but look for what they call the mobile virtual operators. These are the people who use the same towers, but they sell prepaid, no-contract services. And sometimes, my father-in-law, he has a cell phone plan that's free. He bought the phone, and he can call 200 minutes a month for free, zero dollars, okay? So for us who are still paying like $200 for our cell phone plan, like you're getting ripped off. Like, I'm not trying to be mean, but you are losing money. So it's time to shop around, okay? So cell phone, saving $100 on a cell phone plan, if you're like on a Verizon plan, for example, it is so easy, right? It's possible. Okay, food. So she was spending $300. She just has to save $50. Food, you know, 50 bucks, that's like not eating out like twice, right? Or depending on what kind of food you're eating. Transportation. Same thing, carpool, look for ways to save on transportation, walk more, ride a bike. If you're closer to work, public transport, look for ways to save in this area. Insurance, this is one of those things where we never really like to talk about it because it's not fun or exciting, but it's worth it to shop around for insurance. One of the things with insurance that's amazing is that it's a one-time decision that saves you money for a long period of time. So if you're if you're if you're looking for a if you're able to sign up for a cheaper insurance plan, you make a decision once you do the homework. It might take you a few days. You might need to talk to a broker or research online. Let's say it saves you hundred dollars a month. That's hundred dollars a month every month now, with no more additional effort, with no effect on your quality of life. How much effort is it going to take for you to save hundred dollars a month on your grocery bill every time you check out? I mean, you're going to be constantly slapping your hand, constantly biting your tongue, constantly feeling so deprived. So for the same amount of savings, you shop around for insurance, it takes like way less effort, way less pain, way less like self, you know, masochism. Uh, same with personal effects, right? If you, she wants to save $20, that's like being, buying one less outfit. Um, or something like that. Recreation, okay, 50 bucks, it could be subscriptions. That's the other thing, right? If we have a bunch of subscriptions, let's say a gym membership or membership some whatever, entertainment, you know, music plans or Netflix plans, you make that one-time decision to cancel that and it saves you every month from then on with no more additional effort, right? So those are the types of things that you can think about. And also, I'll go back to utilities for a minute. You may not be able to have uh, solar panels on your roof, but if you're still using incandescent light bulbs, right, switch them out to LED light bulbs. With zero effort, you will have saved at least half of your lighting bill just by doing that, okay? Another tip, in our home, we don't use our uh, clothes dryer unless it's raining outside. We hang dry our clothes. It might take a few minutes, but we did the math, at least with our house, it costs about 50 cents per load of laundry. And we got a little baby now, so uh, that's a lot of laundry. For higher rates of electricity, it might be more like 75 cents. And so just 
over time, if you're using little things like this, you just hang dry your clothes, you have a little rack or whatever, you're saving 75 cents every time, okay? And over time, it does add up. And so let's just say, right, she has all of these little ways that adds up, and now she is up to a 35% savings rate. She's got her $1,260 a month, $770 savings, uh, long-term, and $490 short-term savings. So now she's able to achieve her goals. So I want to talk a little bit about how we view budgets differently. Okay, So we just talked about this, the monthly spending plan. And the monthly spending plan, you see, it's driven by something. And it's driven not by spending control so much as it is savings maximization. Okay? There's a difference in how we approach our budgeting when we think about it this way. Because when we talk about budgets, we frequently think of them as handcuffs that tell us what we can't do. But instead, a budget should be telling us what we need to do to achieve what we want. You see the difference? And so when we, when we are a savings-driven, a goals-driven uh, financial management strategy, we're no longer just telling ourselves what not to do. We're telling ourselves what to do in order to achieve our goals. It answers the question of why, right? So why should I not buy this dress? Why should, I, why should I not go out to eat this weekend? Why should I not have this subscription? It answers that question. It's because it helps me accomplish X, Y, and Z on my savings goals. It helps me achieve this so much faster and so forth. And it is the means versus the end. So when we think about our monthly spending plan, it is simply a means to get us where we need to go as opposed to an end in itself. So it's like the example I like to use is sometimes... You know, uh, when we go on a road trip, we never say the goal for our road trip is to not run out of gas. We never say that. We say the goal or our destination for this road trip is the Grand Canyon or the Empire State Building or whatnot. And to not run out of gas is an assumption, the means by which to accomplish that goal. And so when we talk about our monthly spending, the goal, the point is not, oh, so that I don't run out of money. That's not the goal. That's simply the means to achieve your goal. Yeah, we're not going to run out of money, and I don't want to run out of money because I want to be able to afford this mission trip that I'm going on next month. I want to be able to afford, without debt, my, uh, my kids' college education. I want to be able to retire with dignity. I want to be able to pay off my house in five years or whatnot. So those are the goals, not running out of money every month, to be able to save up each month. It's simply the means to those goals. Does that make sense? It's a difference in perspective. And so it keeps the focus on our savings rate. It gives us the target that we're shooting for. And this is an important point. Again, it's, it's human behavior. Achieving goals makes budgeting much more motivating. It's a lot more motivating to say, that's what I'm driving toward. That's what I'm going to get at the end of the road, rather than simply slapping ourselves on the hand and saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, why did you do that? And so... Okay, one, one more slide. So, uh, how are we doing? Can I take 10 more minutes? Are, are you okay? Because uh, this is where I can conclude if you are just dying. But if we're able to continue, I can wrap things up in about 10 minutes. All right, so let's move on now because we need to talk about relationships. Oh, sorry. One more. 
So within all of this, we're looking at the numbers and we're looking at the you know, human behavior and all of that, but there's another aspect to this that we need to remember and that is that money is, especially if we're operating in a family environment, money is closely intertwined with relationships. If you're married, you will know. You cannot do this alone. It's a team effort, right? If you've got kids, it affects them. And so when we talk about this savings plan, it's all wrapped around relationships, right? There's this wrapper that ties everything together. Everyone's got to be on the same page. People have to understand where we're coming from. And so if you're single, okay, you have to remember this. Who you marry is the single largest financial decision you will ever make. We don't usually think of it that way, right? It is a big decision, but it is also the biggest financial decision because it can literally bankrupt you. <laughs> financial incompatibility is one of the most common contributors to divorce. It's not to say that money is the reason why they get divorced, but money frequently contributes to the problem. It makes things worse. It makes a bad situation worse if the financial incompatibility is in the mix. Money issues can bankrupt the marriage figuratively and literally. And so you must make sure to look for someone who is financially compatible. Obviously, the question is then, how do I find someone like that? How do I know? Okay, here are a few questions you need to ask. How is their career? What are their debt problems, right? You know, especially for parents, fathers of young ladies who are being wooed by potential suitors, frequently the question is, what kind of job do they have? You know, I understand that sometimes there's a frustration, particularly within, you know, uh, some parents who perhaps don't have a, you know, mission-minded mindset and all of that. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that is that there is an element of a, a man's character that is revealed by their career. I'm not saying you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything, but it's the work ethic is what I'm talking about. Is he able to provide? Because we read earlier, the Bible says, if you don't provide for your household, you have denied the faith. Worse than an infidel. There is a responsibility there. And what Ellen White calls a husband, right? It's literally a house band. The husband is supposed to hold the house together. And if a man is not able to hold down a job, pay his debts, pay his bills, that is showing you something okay so ladies watch for that and men same thing with the ladies do they only know how to spend and don't know how to save ah, i'm gonna watch their shopping habits right that's the next thing what are their family's money habits like okay this is an important metric the apple doesn't fall for far from the tree as they say so if you're interested in the young lady don't just look at the young lady look at her mother how did she train her daughter? She might not look the same, but inside, it's the same DNA, okay? This is, uh, this last one is a very revealing one. What kind of gifts do they expect? What kind of gifts do they expect? So, uh, when I was um, about to propose to my wife, you know, we do the whole Adventist thing, right? We don't get the ring, we get the watch. And so I got her a watch uh, from Amazon. 
And uh, it was a nice watch, but it was a watch that I paid for with points from all of these different services that I used. <laughs> so basically, it was free. And some of the ladies, you know, in the room, if someone were to propose with a watch that was free, would probably say, you insincere man. How can, no, no. But the thing is, I knew my wife. And the fact that it was free was more impressive to her than the watch itself. <laughs> so, so the point here is financial compatibility, right? If I had gotten my wife, you know, you heard my story yesterday, you know, the, the diamonds, right? $40 million or whatever. If I had gotten her something like that, it would have been a flat out, no way I'm never marrying you. But there are some women, right, who would never settle for anything less. And if that's the case, young men who want to serve the Lord, run away. <laughs> you are financially incompatible and incapable. <laughs> so the point is there are these little ways to, to determine, to sort of uh, to figure out who this person is in these areas in their lives, right? There could be other things like what kind of food do they expect to eat? You know, what kind of restaurants do they expect you to take them out to when it's uh, time to go on a date? Like all of these things, you got to be thinking if you're in the, you know, courtship period. Because it's the biggest financial decision you're ever going to make. All right? And compatibility here will save you a lot, a lot of grief later on. And if you're engaged, okay, now is the time to make sure there are no money secrets. You need to have the money talk. Discuss openly your views on money. You must be transparent and honest. And you must agree on money goals before getting married. So after I proposed to my wife, she did say yes. We, uh, one night, she was like, you know, we need to talk. And uh, somehow she made it clear it was some, something about money. And I thought, oh, great. This is where she's going to tell me she's got some secret debt, some huge amount of loan somewhere that I didn't know about before. So I was bracing myself like, oh, okay, fine. Okay, let's sit down. Okay. And she gave me her checkbook. She said, look at that. And I said, okay. I looked at it, and I don't remember the exact amount, but it was some huge amount of money. Because you remember, I told you the story about the house. We had a $100,000 down payment, and most of that, not all of it, but most of that was saved up before we met. And so she had a large amount of money in her bank account. And I looked at it, and I thought, what? <laughs> and, she, and she said, uh, so what do you think? What do you think? It was, it was something like that. Yeah, I, I do. I do right now. That's not what I said. I don't know what got into me, but I said something like I asked her, so where has this money been sitting? She said, oh, it's been in some CDs. You know, and she explained what she's been doing, you know, moving them around in CDs to get a little bit more interest. And I don't know why I said this, but this is what I said. Something to the effect of, you know, if you had just put your money over here, you would have earned like twice as much. And she, she was silent. She was like, uh, uh, I thought you would be impressed, right? Well, I, I was impressed.
But somehow, you know, I guess we had already gotten to a point in our relationship where we can talk openly and transparently about things like that. And she, her mind started working. And later on, she told me in her mind, she was thinking, oh, wow, this can really work. <laughs> I can do all the saving, and he can just invest it. And she realized at that point, yeah, this is going to work out. So we had a talk that night, right? And that's, at the t that's the point in which we discussed, okay, so how are we going to handle this? Right? If you have this amount of money, and it's very, it was very wise for my wife to wait until that point in which there was a little bit more commitment in the relationship to talk about that. Because if it was beforehand, you know, it would have clouded the whole relationship. But now that we're you know, locking step and ready to you know, get married, be one flesh and all that, we need, to we need to be a team. So we need to understand and be in concert with how are we going to handle this money? What are our values? Okay, I, at that point, was already thinking of going back to school to get a graduate degree. Are we going to borrow money? Are we going to pay it off you know, with the money that we have saved up? Am I going to work my way through? What are we going to do? Right? We talked about all these things. And, of course, planning the wedding, we're, we're getting there. Uh, we talked about how much we want to spend, what kind of wedding do we like, all of those things. We got it out all on the table, and we were able to agree uh, before we said I do at the marriage altar. If you aren't clear on where each other stand on money, you just simply aren't ready to get married. There are, that's just too much of a risk. Delay the wedding, right? Put it off. you got to know. And Ellen White even makes, makes the statement, better to, have a, to break an engagement than to be unfortunately married for life. And planning the wedding together, it will uncover a lot. A lot about the person. How do they plan? How organized they are? You know, budgeting and all of that. You know, you can do your life event plan. That's a great place to start. Putting the family budget together. Laying it out ahead of time. And if you're married, okay, you got to remember, money is a team sport. You can't just say, oh, you do it. Because inevitably, something's going to come back to haunt you. Once you're married, you have become one flesh. That means your bank accounts, too. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that you can't have separate bank accounts per se. But make sure that your spouse has your password. There's no secrets. That's the point. How someone is spending his or her money when you're married, there's no his business and her business. It's our business. And that's one of the biggest problems is when people start splitting their accounts and people don't have that level of trust. So, yes, if they are for business reasons or whatever, you got to have separate accounts, that's fine. Just make sure each other have access to each other's accounts. This next one is important. You need to designate one person to be the primary financial caretaker. You know the saying, too many cooks in the kitchen? Uh, it's the same way because when you're dealing with money, you know, if someone comes in and makes an uh, you know, adjustment and then a person comes in and makes the same adjustment, you know, it's easy to just have too many hands overlapping just for the sake of keeping things more organized. Have one person be the designated person to keep the books. But you want to create and review your savings and spending plans together. So you set your goals together, but someone executes the will of the group, of the family firm. And... Uh, Pick the person who is more savvy with numbers, right? If you have two people, one person is more, you know, comfortable with numbers, let that person handle the budgeting. Let, let's, you know, play to each other's strengths. And here's another helpful tip. Set a dollar amount over which no purchase occurs without joint discussion. 
It's a simple rule, but it saves a lot of trouble. Imagine the guys come and say, hey, we want to go on this trip, golf or skiing or snowboarding or whatever. Uh, well, you know, let, let me go talk to my wife first. Oh, are you the man? Oh, man, you got to talk to your wife and get permission first. No, it's just something we agree to. I'm not submitting my you know, headship in the home under my wife. No, we just agree to it. I'm loving my wife as Christ loved the church. So you imagine you come home and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, the friends, you know, they want to go out and da-da-da-da-da, do this. Your wife says, that's our anniversary weekend. How dare you? Oh, guys, mm -mm, I'm not coming. <laughs> so a simple discussion like that saved that man a month sleeping in the doghouse, <laughs> right? But it could be any other number of things, right? The, the man comes home with a new toy. It's like he drives home with a big boat on the trailer. The wife's like, there goes my vacation. There goes my new kitchen. Or the wife comes home with a new fur coat, and the, wife, the husband's like, what did you do? And then all of these things, even though you might think, oh, yeah, that's funny. You can get over it. But you know what? Those little things, those little agitations, little distrusts build up and resentment and bitterness happens. And all of a sudden, when there's a big argument down the road, especially for the women, every single misdeed of the man's life comes into vivid color. You remember when you bought this without telling me? You know, I have to sacrifice this so you can go on that trip. da 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 but if we had this in place, a rule, right? Okay, if it's over $100 or $200 or $50 or whatever dollar amount you want to say, it's just a family agreement. We're just going to talk about it. It's going to save you a lot of grief. But you want to include some fun money for each other in the budget as well. So this depends on your personality, okay? It depends on your personality. For my wife and I, we find pleasure in saving the money. So it's, it's painful for us to spend money on ourselves. So we're weird like that. But I understand not everyone is like us. So if you are like, okay, we really need some escape, right? We're really intense in paying off debt. You might just give each other maybe, you know, it might just be a $10, right, a, a week at first. You can up it when you're paying off debts and stuff. And it's just you can do whatever you want. You don't have to ask. You don't have to talk about it. You can get something for yourself. You can go have fun. You can go get something for your family, whatever. Include that as an escape hatch you know, for some release of tension. And then you want to celebrate the victories together. So you pay off the house, do something fun. right? You pay off your student loans, do something to commemorate that victory together. right? You want to make it so that when you have successes, it's something that is associated with positive feelings, positive family memories. And you want to make the finances a point of unity for the family rather than a point of conflict. And especially for children, right? If we're having, let's say, um, you know, uh, Ellen White talks about a self-denial box in the house, you know, Sabbath school investments, missions offerings, things like that. It could be something like sponsoring a child in India or Africa or something. And the family comes together and it's like a team goal. So, you know, little Johnny and Susie, whatever, you know, they, they have their allowance money or they're selling lemonade or they're helping mow the neighbor's grass and they're saving money and the parents contribute and whatever and they're contributing to a family project. It could be to build a church. It could be to sponsor a child. It could be to go on a trip, to a mission trip or something. You want to create those opportunities while the family is still young, right, especially the little kids, to get them to understand that money is a, is a tool 
for advancing the mission of God and is something that is enjoyable in the family. It's not like the only time my parents ever talk about money is when they're in an argument, right? So you want to make that opportunity for the family to uh, enjoy it. And so in the end, it can even be fun. So here's a, one last point for those who are about to get married or those who are married. This is a life hack for couples. So let's just say for one year after you get married, you live on just one income and invest a second plus all cash wedding gifts. You might be done saving for retirement completely. Okay? So this is a life hack for retirement, but you might use this instead of retirement. It might be for student loan payoff. It might be to pay off a house. Right? Let's say you get married at 25 and both spouses work. One income plus all wedding cash gifts equal $50,000 and invested at 88% for 40 years. That $50,000 will have turned into almost $1.2 And that will yield approximately $48,000 a year of retirement income. Okay, that's based on some conventional numbers and assumptions. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on the numbers, but the point I'm trying to share here is for a couple to be on the same page it can result in real financial returns over the long term in actual dollars and cents. In this case, they've saved up, you know, of a huge nest eggs. They can retire at 65. For another couple, it might be saving enough so they're completely debt-free really early. For another one, like, you know, in my wife, in my case, we paid off our house in two years. So the point is, get on the same page, save as much as you can, Work your savings plan and your monthly spending to save as much as you can. So again, here's the flow chart. Life events, long-term, short-term savings, feeding into our monthly spending, and amount that we save goes back to meet our goals. So let's wrap things up here. You've been very gracious. I've gone way over time. So the summary, never borrow money for anything that goes down in value. Borrowing is acceptable only if the purchase will increase in value or generate income. That can pay it off later. Credit cards aren't dangerous in and of themselves, but credit card use without self-control is dangerous. And paying off debt is the best investment, okay? And you should use the debt snowball method. We should minimize our student loans and mortgages up front and pay them off as soon as you can. Do not inflate our lifestyle to, uh, you know, in order to pay them off. Pay the biggest down payment you can muster. Pay as large monthly payments as you can. That's the only way to pay debt off faster is to make bigger payments. And you must have a plan or you will never reach your destination. That's why we have the whole savings plan and the monthly spending plan. And our financial plans reveal our priorities in life, okay? It's a helpful reflection to think through our priorities. And we need to plan ahead for life events instead of relying on debt. And our saving goals should drive our monthly spending decisions, okay? That's an important point here. And marriage is the most important decision we will ever make. And money is a team sport. Husband, wife must be united. So uh, last slide. Okay, I can leave this up. So let's pray as we conclude. Thank you for your time. Father in heaven, we are thankful for all that you have taught us. Lord, help us to be mindful with the money you have given into our care. It all belongs to you. It's not ours. But we want to be wise stewards to provide for the necessities of the ones you have placed under our care, but also to have a surplus and extra to place back into the work of God. May we give sacrificially. May we be faithful with our tithes and our offerings. May we be uh, careful it, with how we spend and may we save prudently and may we ultimately be able to give glory to you by seeing many souls in the kingdom because we have increased the talents that you have placed into our care bless us now the, and the remainder of our camp here this weekend we ask we pray now in Jesus name
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.